Good evening, Dr. Dan Guerra here, Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the last day of February. So if there are anything you plan to do in February, you better get it done soon. Especially if you're not listening to this until, well, after midnight, because then it will be March. Now, you're probably aware of this, so I won't need to continue any discussion of it or make a good, sound argument to prove it to you. What I am going to do is talk to you about diabetes. This is uh, lecture four. We're going to take a um, physiological route this evening and talk a little bit about pancreas. So ultimately what we're going to land on is there is a pancreatic insufficiency and multiple disorders of both endocrine and exocrine activity in association with diabetes. There's going to be an unusual diabetes we're going to um, discuss this evening. So you know that pancreas has two functions, endocrine and exocrine. And you know that these functions can be interactive and in fact, they recombine in function and even in structural association. Both of these functions of the pancreas, exocrine and endocrine, cooperate in controlling metabolic homeostasis via the control over digestion, absorption, metabolism, and trafficking of what arrives from the diet. Now there are <clears throat> lobulated tubulo alveolar acinar structures, endocrine islet cells which secrete their hormones in what is known as the insuloacinar portal vascular pathway in uh, anatomy. And it regulates and conditions the ductal and acinar cell exocrine activity as well. Okay. Now, it's been shown that insulin and other uh, islet peptides, so if you're from the beta cell, and what other islet peptides we're talking about are the C-peptide, uracortin-3, and the amyline. All of them follow postprandial increases in serum glucose. And those various peptides, including insulin, are found also in association with the stimulation of the exocrine pancreatic functionality. Now, on the other hand, the increase in glucagon during fasting or starvation will, of course, suppress pancreatic enzyme and other secretions. Okay, that would be the exocrine function. So you have ductal and you have acinar cells. And in turn, they affect the physiology of the endocrine islet cells through cytokines, not necessarily pro-inflammatory, as well as growth factor secretion. On top of that, the endocrine cells are fully disseminated in the small bowel and they secrete two 
very important peptide hormones. GLP-1, which is the glucagon-like peptide 1, and the glucose-dependent insulinotropic hormone, or GIP. So you've got GLP and GIP. Together, those are known as incretins. We've lectured on them in the past. They're released almost immediately after the absorption of lipid or carbohydrate in the diet. So they stimulate, because they cooperate with insulin, a strong insulinic activity. Any deregulation, in fact, in incretin secretion is often associated with some kind of dysfunction in the insulinic response. And we find this, of course, with insulin resistance in type 2 diabetes. Now, we have another disorder that is basically simply inflammation of the pancreas. But when I say it's simply that, of course, it's going to require a long discussion. So pancreatitis has been described for patients which have been diagnosed with a subtype of diabetes that you may not have heard of. It's called type 3. Now, it's similar to type 1 in that you get autoimmune destruction of the islet cells. And that is caused by pro-inflammatory production as well as fibrosis. Both of those are injurious to the islet cells, and that's how they're destroyed. So type 3 diabetes is actually still different from type 1 because the damage of those islet cells, the pancreas, aren't just limited to the ones that secrete insulin, not just the beta cells, but that pancreatic islet degradation is diffused throughout the pancreas, and so it affects also glucagon and multiple pancreatic peptide secretions. So this happens with the alpha cells, not just the beta cells, and also with uh, PP cells, they're called. Now, on top of all this, type 3 uh, diabetes, you get a diminished insulin release. So again, this is more like type 1 in some ways. But it's been suggested that if, you're, if you have a frank type 3 diabetes, you have to have other basically pre-existing morbidities that are more like type 2. And I just mentioned these. These would be obesity, high caloric density diet, and then the associated insulin resistance. Those would be obviously markers for type 2 diabetes. Now, type 3 diabetes is also further complex because if you're looking for optimal regulation of glucose uptake, obviously, because of the phenotype I just described to you, (laughs) there's going to be a problem with the regulation of glucose metabolism in the cells where glucose uptake is hindered. And of course, this will cause multiple organ disease presentation, including that in the pancreas. It also will be associated, if you're doing a glucose test, glucose tolerance test, very large changes in glucose concentration 
in the serum. So it'll look like an incre rapid increase, rapid decrease. So it's not quite like what you see in types 1 or type 2 diabetes. You get a rapid turnover of glucose, glucose in the blood because you get a rapid turnover of glucose uptake and production from the pancreas that are totally unrelated or at least unregulated, maybe that'd be a better word, from dietary lipid and carbohydrate ingestion. So you can see this is a fundamentally more complex disease. So <clears throat> we don't really understand, even in the, you know, the last five, 10 years of looking at type 3 diabetes, how diabetes is influenced, this kind of diabetes is actually influencing the exocrine function. We know a lot about the endocrine function, right? We know a lot about insulin production, insulin secretion, and glucagon, of course. So those are endocrine functions. And somatostatin be the third. So you know that the most abundant type of diabetes is type 2, and that's because it's linked to chronic ingestion of high caloric density foods, particularly carbohydrate. That's why you would get, say, diabetes rather than simple dyslipidemia. However, this type 3 diabetes might actually be occult in a type 2 background. And unless your clinician is looking at pancreatic activity and particularly looking for um, pancreatic insufficiency, which means a decrease in the secretion of exocrine factors, it may not even be picked up. So the idea is to look at functions of the pancreas that are strictly exocrine. And one of the things you look at is fecal elastase or fecal lipase, which ends up going, of course, to the small intestine. Therefore, you can measure the amount of elastase activity in the feces or which is a protease or lipase activity. And this can be essentially an indirect indicator of pancreatic insufficiency and maybe pancreatitis may be associated with this type 3 diabetes, you understand? Okay. So that's what the uh, this current paper I'm looking at right now is going to try to get into. This paper was published um, almost seven years ago. It was published in the International Journal of Endocrinology in late 2015. So let me tell you a little bit more things here. You get multiple abnormalities in histology and imaging when you look at a pancreas of diabetic patients. So the kind of imaging you're talking about is MRI, CT, and also ultrasound, right? And so besides getting unusual cellular uh, morphologies or histological features, you also get atrophy, fibrosis, and that includes changes in size and morphology of cells that are associated with the pancreas, right? And this is then apparently a direct association with pancreatic exocrine insufficiency in diabetes, because this is where you pick it up. And again, you have to do imaging of the pancreas to do this. So the damage of the exocrine cells in type 1 diabetes is also multi-complex and factorial. And 
it's been described for many years as coming from possibly multiple functional causes, including efficient causes, formal causes. So what are some of these? There could be a lack of trophic action of insulin and possibly also of glucagon and somatostatin on the SNR cells themselves. Secondarily, there could be an involvement of the exocrine tissue in an autoimmune disease association of the islet cells. We already mentioned this. And also, you could have an autonomic diabetic neuropathy. That would, of course, lead to an enteropancreatic reflex impairment, which would then associate with insufficiency. And finally, I should mention, you can also find hypoxic, what's known as sufferance of exocrine tissues. And that can be linked to another cellular event known as microvascular degradation. So type 1 diabetes, of course, is the primary autoimmune disease. That is autoimmune disease associated with the beta cells, right? What are some of the normal uh, clinical characterizations? First of all, it happens in younger people. It results in severe insulin deficiency. And it's a disease that has been well described for actually going all the way back to Aristotle. <clears throat> There's a high rate of neural and vascular complication if insulin isn't um, prescribed and taken regularly, daily, by people that suffer from type 1 diabetes. So this is a, obviously a disease we know a lot about. Now, that's in contrast to type 2 diabetes, because there you get, of course, insulin resistance. You also get hypertension, so there's a kidney involvement, and you have a strong liver involvement. Right? You get a fatty liver with type 2 diabetes. You get more fibrosis. You can get hepatitis. And you can get loss of function of lipoprotein metabolism in the liver. You can, because of the increase in cholesterol ester accumulation in the hepatocytes, as well as triacylglycerol, you can have a slowing down of the very low density lipoprotein secretion, as well as an inhibition of intermediate and low density lipoprotein binding to their receptors to be taken back up by the liver. And that also includes high density lipoprotein uptake. So there's a great deal of lipoprotein disorder in type two diabetics. Now, <clears throat> pancreatic exocrine insufficiency is also well-described in the type 1 diabetic, and it happens almost soon as someone is diagnosed with that disease. You can pick it up. And so for a long time, people are looking at fecal elastase in children because that would be an indicator, remember, of an issue with insufficiency of the exocrine function of the pancreas. And so people have looked at um, normal population of children where this is studied, where PEI is studied, are very young children, um, 
say two years old up to about 25 to 30. And you can have severe pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. If you have a fecal elastase less than 100 microgram per gram, moderate would be less than 200. And you're going to fall between 100 microgram per gram to 200 microgram per gram in about half of all type 1 diabetics. So obviously, half of them are suffering from some kind of pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. Now, in adults with type 1, you do have some severe and some moderate PEI, but it definitely seems to be much more of a problem in younger children. And that has been suggested to mean that the, the pancreatic exocrine function will decrease in parallel with the duration of the disease and increase in insulin requirement. Now, the largest study that was ever done on PEI and type 1 um, looked at only about uh, 200 people between the ages of 2 and 25. And there was a strong association between pancreatic exocrine insufficiency and the duration of the disease. That means of type 1 diabetes, even after insulin supplementation. <clears throat> But besides that insulin requirement and some elevation, of course, of hemoglobin A1C, no other pathophenotypes have been well described for a long time. And that's primarily because with insulin supplementation, people stop doing imaging of the pancreas, right? And stop worrying about the insufficiency of the exocrine function. But this is probably not a good thing that's been overlooked because it seems like young children with type 1 diabetes, even with insulin um, supplementation, suffer long periods of time with exocrine insufficiency. And with that, you can lead to dyslipidemia and, of course, rapid fluctuations in glucose uptake and utilization, which means a corruption of glucose metabolism in all the organs in the body. And this can lead to a great deal of morbidities because now you're talking about type 3 diabetes, right? Which is definitely very dangerous. So you can go from type 1 to type 3 pretty, pretty easily once you start picking up pancreatic insulin insufficiency because you're going to then get this whole... Uh, sequelae of issues with glucose uptake and glucose metabolism, including lipid metabolism, which is linked to it directly. So there have been some larger studies that have been done more recently, and people have looked at both type 1 and type 2 diabetics, and they've seen correlation of disease duration and insulin therapy in the type 1, but not so much in the type 2, even when insulin has been supplemented for the type 2, and you know that happens over time. You have hyperinsulinemia at the beginning of a type 2 disease, but as time goes on, the pancreatic beta cells also become dysfunctional in a type 1, I mean, in a type 2, and because of that, insulin is often prescribed. So that might be something that is linked to the slower response that is found as a presentation of pancreatic exocrine insufficiency in the type 2 patients. 
But when you do have type 2 diabetics and they do have PEI, you get the same microvascular damage, pancreatic fibrosis, autoimmune neuropathy that you get with a type 1 PEI. So the pathophysiologies then um, uh, become axial. Now, most of the papers that have been discussed, obesity or just simply an elevated BMI actually seems to protect against PEI. Now, this is found in type 1 diabetics who are normally not obese. So it could be that glucose homeostasis and lipid homeostasis is improved with a little bit more weight on these young children with type 1 diabetes. That's probably what's going on there. So it's not clear if this pancreatic exocrine insufficiency is actually improved by weight gain, because certainly in the obese type 2 diabetics, chronic obesity, chronic long-term type 2 diabetes leads to an increase overall, as time goes on, aging, I mean, of the PEI, that population. And then that, of course, is linked to malnutrition, however, with still a high BMI. You see, there's a lot of things to consider here. Now, you have a reciprocal relationship between the endocrine and exocrine pancreatic function. And even though that's well known, because it has to do with dietary intake, right? And there's going to be a phase transition between between nutritional uptake, the early stages of digestion, the pancreatic release of enzymes and essentially subsequent to that endocrine hormones, and then the liver generating its contribution to the digestive process, right? So you have pancreatic enzymes, you have liver enzymes, and you also have bile acids that are considered in total, and of course bicarbonate, that are necessary for proper digestion. So these are all playing a major role, right? And that's why sometimes it's difficult to know between type 1 and type 2 diabetes where you cross over into pancreatic insufficiency because there's multiple factors that are playing a role here, including the amount of calories taken in each meal and then the postprandial involvement of the exocrine uh, valuation that could be linked to this insufficiency. So again, without uh, doing any kind of scanning, you know, MRI or CT or ultrasound, you may not pick up on the fact that you're getting some tissue damage. That's, that's the, I think, the important issue there. So in other words, the exocrine pancreatic function may not be picked up and it could be going occult. Now, there is quite a prevalence of PEI in type 1 diabetes. So I'm going to give you some ranges here, about 25 to 75%. So that's a huge range. But again, that probably has a lot to do with whether or not you're getting that autoimmune corruption, right? And that, that neuropathy, which is going to give you probably the more critical um, PEI as opposed to the less morbid variety. But now listen to this, 25 to 75% PEI in type 1 diabetics, but you have about the same somewhere between 30 to maybe 55 or 60% of the type 2. Type 2 diabetics also showing PEI, okay? And again, this is measured 
not just with morphological changes in the cells, but also with this fecal elastase, uh, which is, again, a standard assay for pancreatitis and for pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. It's easy to do, right? Because it's getting it from the stool. So, but the, the problem with the elastase measurement, it can be highly variable. So it's only one measurement and it's easy to do because elastase is one of those enzymes, the protease, extracellular proteases tend to be very, very um, non-susceptible to degradation, right? Because if they're secreted enzyme, they have to be functional with changes in pH, changes in ionic concentration, and also just simply moving through the system, right? And there's all kinds of proteases uh, in uh, pancreatic juice and in um, liver exudate, liver secretion, and also in the blood. So the elastase, because it, it itself has to be converted um, to its functional form by other proteases. In fact, part of its own activity is to convert the proenzyme into the active enzyme. There's a lot of uh, cofunctionality between proteolytic activity and then the final measurement of the elastase in the feces, which may go again, what I call occult, because if you're only measuring the end product, you don't know how much of the protein was actually secreted. If you don't know that, it may be unclear why you have low levels of elastase. Because if it's clearly just from secretion, from the exocrine uh, function of the pancreas, that would mean it would be backing all the way up the transcription, translation, processing of the polypeptide. But if you're looking at elastase in its mature form, after complete digestion in the feces, it's a long-term effect that may be highly modified by all the other activities that ultimately lead to an active form of elastase, including just turnover. But as I said, many of the proteases themselves. Okay. So there's another way of measuring um, pancreatic insufficiency, and that's by using C13, heavy-labeled, triacylglycerol. And then there's also a breath test looking for uh, C13 carbon dioxide on the breath or acetone. So there's multiple ways to look at the complete digestion. And a recent study has shown uh, using C13 mixed triacylglycerol with the breath test. That's looking at C13 coming off the breath, right? That the pancreatic exocrine function that you, that you detect that way can be from mild to moderate in type 2 diabetes. So again, this is a much, um, I would say, thorough way to measure pancreatic and the entire digestive system. Because if you're taking C13 labeled TAG and you're looking at its digestion from uh, the oral cavity all the way back to the oral cavity, in the form of uh, C13CO2 or acetone, you've looked at the complete digestion of that lipid. So that's going to give you a real good indication of the rate constants associated with lipase-mediated retailering of triacylglycerol in the duodenum and jejunum, as well as the original packaging to chylomicrons, the one pass of chylomicrons, the lipoprotein lipase activity, and ultimately the deposition of lipids into the adipose, muscle cells, et cetera. But also, yeah, the utilization of some of that lipid um, after, again, lipase activity, uh, translocation into the cell through CD36 receptors or other kinds of 
receptors that will pick up free fatty acid from serum albumin or from lipoprotein docking to their receptors, utilization in the liver, ultimately going through the acyl-CoA, acyl-carnitine, beta oxidation pathways, generating acetoacetate and beta hydroxybutyrate, and then utilizing those ketone bodies ultimately getting carbon dioxide with C13, right? So see the whole pathway is measured that way. And when you do that, you begin to see that type 2 diabetes does have quite a bit of pancreatic insufficiency because that ultimate um, process, entire lipid digestion and utilization process is at least partially contributed to by the pancreatic exocrine function. Don't you know? So this leads you well into understanding about physiology as well as um, biochemistry and how that links to nutrition. So I'm glad we're doing this because um, it allows me to cover all these bases. We're going to do some molecular genetics next, and we're going to do some epigenetics as well. And of course, we're going to stick with diabetes as the main um, purpose of these lectures. Okay, so I'm going to stop here because I'm almost out of time. This is Dr. Dan Guerra on the last day of February. That would be the 28th this year because it's not a leap year of the year 2022. And I am glad to be able to say to you, my great audience, please consider subscribing and contributing to Authentic Biochemistry because we really need to build up our program so that we can contribute uh, this important knowledge base to you um, and get it to larger audiences. So Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest, this beautiful warm evening with the wind saying bye for now. <laughs>